Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm very pleased to begin today's podcast by thanking some of our fellow saloners who, unlike me, who has been goofing off these past two weeks, well, they instead have made donations to help offset some of the expenses here in the salon. And these wonderful souls are James S., Timothy M., Ryan Q., and Kloss H., all of whom made direct donations to the salon, as did one anonymous saloner who made a Bitcoin donation on the 15th of May. And I should let you know that all of the Bitcoin donations that have come in over the past several years are still in my account. Long ago, I decided to just hold them as a backup for any potential emergency that might come up. So some of those uh, early donations have now been multiplied many times over. And I thank all of our donors from the bottom of my heart. Also, I want to thank Lex Pelger for his recent plug about my Patreon account. In case you missed my announcement a few months ago, thanks to the generosity of my patrons, my next book is going to be released directly into the public domain, which means that you and everybody else is going to be able to get a copy for free. And since Lex made his announcement a week ago, I am very pleased to welcome the following saloners as patrons, and they are Kai M., John C., Brady A., Nina N., Sassy M., Chase B., and Anil P. And I guess I should mention that the main reason this podcast is a bit late is that I got a little too wrapped up in working on my new book. It now looks like I'm going to be able to publish it by the end of this summer, which means that if you want to have your name listed in the book as one of the patrons who have made it possible for me to place it directly into the public domain... Well, then you still have a little time left to be included. However, I also know that there are a lot of our fellow saloners who aren't currently in a position to donate a couple of dollars each month for this project. And having been in that position myself, I completely understand. In fact, that's one of the reasons that I've decided that from here on out, I'm going to put all of my new writing into the public domain as it's published. That way, uh, even though you're broke, you're still going to be able to read my ramblings. (laughs) And uh, if you ask any writer whether they would rather have a dollar or so royalty on a book or have more people read it, I think that you'll discover that without readers, we probably wouldn't be spending so much time working on these projects. We're all in this together, you know. Now, uh, finally getting to today's podcast... Since Burning Man and Planque Norte are now almost upon us, I'm going to play one more of last year's Planque Norte lectures that fellow saloner Frank Nuccio recorded for us. And I should add that I received an email from Frank uh, just the other day, and he was offering to give me a ticket to Burning Man this year. And while I truly appreciate your offer, Frank, I'll, well, I'll have to pass again this year. Right now, I'm, I'm thinking that probably the next time I make it to Burning Man is going to be in 2022, where I can celebrate my 80th birthday there. But until then, I'm just going to have to attend virtually through the work of people like you, Frank, and Bradley Smith, who uh, Pez now tells me is the person that has taken over the lead role for the Planque Norte Lecture Series. 
I wish you all the best, guys, and I'm looking forward to sharing the recordings that you make of this year's lectures. So, now today we're going to hear from, uh, well, I guess I should call them filmmakers, but to me they seem more like adventurers who have a film crew with them. I'm talking about Rack Razam and Niles Heckman, the two men behind the documentary series Shamans of the Global Village. You might recall that back in my podcast number 516, I spoke about their marvelous film, which I just watched, and, well, it really blew me away. Here's a little bit of what I said back then. I've read hundreds of books about psychedelics, and I've seen dozens of films dealing with that topic, but without any doubt in my mind, Shamans of the Global Village is by far the best treatment of the psychedelic world that I've ever seen. This film series, in my opinion, is going to be the new standard for what a high-quality production about psychedelics should reach for. The writing, editing, and other production values are top-notch. But enough from me. Here now are Rack Razam and Niles Heckman at the 2016 Palenque Norte Lectures at Burning Man, and they're going to be telling us a little more about their work with indigenous people. So, um... That was episode one of Shamans of the Global Village. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. And, you know, it is a great responsibility to be documenting this global shamanic resurgence. You know, in my 10 years or so of working with ayahuasca and other entheogens and being a media maker, um, encapsulating the essence of what's going on, it is difficult because there is something larger than all of us. There seems to be a cycle to this. And, you know, the planet secretes these entheogenic substances which invoke the divine within, as they say, or reconnect us to uh, a larger holistic sense of the planet, of Gaia, and through Gaia of, uh, of the universe. And it puts us in our place. And they can be very healing modalities. There's a lot of work now, both with the medicalization of psychedelics and with the global shamanic movement, to... It seems like the first wave is concentrating on healing people because... Western culture and modern culture is out of balance. It's really sick. And our relationship with the earth is sick. And what we've done to the earth with the level of consciousness that we've had. Um, I do believe, though, that there's larger world ages and cycles of consciousness itself, as, as many indigenous cultures believe, uh, like the Kali Yuga or the Mayan culture with different world ages, all these different tribes who have had relationships both with the earth and with, uh, with the, the cosmos understand that we we are in a in a cycle of time and in a relationship with the seasons of both consciousness and and the medicines of the planet herself and so um you know in the last few decades we've seen the indigenous people who've been caretakers of the the medicines of their lands uh engage with westerners it's been going on for for a long time but there's been a groundswell in the last few decades with interest in things like ayahuasca and now iboga Psilocybin mushrooms are coming back to the fore with interest. Uh, Salvia divinorum, San Pedro cactus, Hayoma in Iran, um, acacias in Australia. Uh, there are so many substances which alter our consciousness, but they don't just alter our consciousness. They bring us back into relationship with the plant, with the spirit in the plants, and with the earth and with the larger cycles. And so I do believe that there, there is a global shamanic resurgence happening and the driving force behind that is um, not just Gaia herself but a larger connection as the 5-MeO-DMT reveals with source consciousness itself, with the, the emanating, uh, eternal, loving, infinite 
presence of of the source, which you know, it's really only Western culture in the last few hundred years which has not felt that, which has not understood that, which has fallen out of relationship with that. And that's the thing behind the scenes of everything. And that's the thing which animates uh, everything, like the wireframe. So um, I'm going to throw to Niles. So he can talk a little bit maybe about making the show and the challenges of uh, and, and responsibility of, of, of not just making a documentary about whatever, but about shamanic issues and about spirituality and about the, the sacredness of these substances. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thanks for coming out, everybody. Does this is this mic loud enough? Is this working? Want to turn it up a little bit? Does that work? Um, I guess we can use this, and then we'll give this to the audience. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, for those that don't know, I mean, Rack Razam wrote and produced the show, and then hosts it, obviously. And I'm Niles Heckman. I directed and shot the show. And this is something that was made, you know, independently, just conceptualized by Rack, and then created by the two of us together. And it's something that has been made, you know, 100% independently. The idea for the series is to obviously have each episode focus on a specific medicine person, a specific medicine. So as Rack highlighted, the pilot for, focuses on Octavio and his work with the Sonoran Desert Toad. But the idea is to make this an entire series, you know, a documentary series, um, and, and have it be something that is uh, a thing that we can continue to create uh, as time goes on with schedule and uh, budget, you know, allowing. But... It was made for, you know, very little money, about the same amount of money that, you know, a large production has for their craft budget for a single day. So <laughs> we're pretty proud of the result that we got out of it, but it's something that the two of us as kind of two white guys up here talking about shamanism, I mean, we, we fully realize that, um, you know, as Octavio says in the episode, we used to be a global shamanic culture, and we've lost that at some point. And obviously indigenous people who have kept the lineage of shamanism much more um, purely than the West, West has or the quote-unquote industrialized first world has, um, understand the relationship and the balance uh, of medicinal plants and the shamanistic practice and what it is to be uh, you know, a, a medicine person in a small tribe m- more than we have because we've lost that at some point. So as the series goes on, I mean, it's something that we fully realize and um, expect as each episode to continue continues like... Octavio has, he has the approval of the indigenous tribe that he's worked with. So as we continue on, the idea is to continue making more episodes with people who may be Westerners um, that have you know, felt the call to some sort of medicine practice or becoming maybe a shaman themselves, but have done that through the lineage of the indigenous people. You know, that's kind of a, a, a crucial component to the show. So yeah, I mean, this was something that we got going independently together, and we're talking about this now. This is 2016. We shot it in um, Mexico in 2015, you and I together. And uh, I think it ended up being quite a life-changing journey for both of us and the entire crew that came with us. But um, it's something that through development of, of me as a filmmaker and Rack as a filmmaker, you know, Rack has a background as a journalist. I have a background more in Hollywood and I'm trying to always align my cosmology with doing more conscious projects. This was, like you say, the perfect kind of balance of your background and my background to make something that's kind of the culmination of both of our life's work thus far. Even though uh, here at Palenque Norte, you know, we saw it under less than ideal conditions, but it can always be watched online down the line. But um, that's the thing about the show that I think is, is profound for us as filmmakers is that it's such a life experience and a growth experience for us because we learn so much and we change so much in the process of making it. So, um, yeah, I mean, do we want to kind of open it up to floor questions or um, how, 
you know, we'll we'll go from there. If anybody has any kind of initial questions about the process or what we did, I mean, I could go into more specifics with things. But if anybody has an immediate question, otherwise, Rack and I will just continue to kind of bounce back and forth off each other. So, let's see if see if that works. Yeah. Yeah. Can we Hi. maybe turn mic to uh, the other mic up a little bit? It's a little. If you've seen uh, working with this this particular group and this shaman and. Um, if you contact with others, if they face any danger of exposure by the government or by military groups or by, um, in Mexico, there's the cartel, that um, do they face? I know that in Russia, most of the shamans of the, of the north, the first shamans there, of, um, were prosecuted through the Tsar's time and through the uh, years of communism. Mm. Yeah, Rack can speak to that pretty well. I mean, obviously, um, he has kind of a, a plan for the season of who we would focus on per episode. But um, some of those folks, just because of exposure and things have that he's inquired with, you know, a certain percentage of them have kind of said that they are not re- necessarily willing to be part of a show like this at this point. But do um, you want to speak to that a bit, man? So if we, if we take the big picture, right, there's... Um Again, it's all, everything's consciousness, but there's these cycles of consciousness. So if you look at the last 500 years or so, Western culture has dominated the other half of the world, the old world. And when it went into the old world, its religious imprint and its filtering mechanism was horrified by plant worship, by cultures that engaged with substances which connected them directly through plant gnosis to the divine because there was no middleman, there were no priests well, there might have been. Sometimes shamans can be, but shamans are more, even though, you know, the technical definition in the West of a shaman, which was coined from uh, Mercy Eliad in his book Shamanism, is sort of a bit between medicine person, doctor, priest, and traveler between the worlds. But in the priestcraft, it's essentially all indigenous cultures and earth-based cultures of the past had this direct gnosis, this route of connecting to the divine, and somewhere along the line, some of their sacred substances were lost either due to climate change or political ramifications or whatever. And the priestcraft took control and filled the gap where the plants used to fill. So priests in Western sort of uh, culmination of cultural um, iterations really were the middle people between you and God. And so Western culture, when it went into the old world and found, you know, San Pedro cactuses or the mushroom cults or all the Mesoamerican cults which had shamanistic practices, killed them all, you know? And it did the same for the medicine people in Europe, for the witches, the herbalists, uh, the magicians, anyone who deviated from the cultural norm of their filtering mechanism of what the ego had latched onto and created religion, which is essentially, you know, a calcification of what was a personal spiritual experience. And many indigenous cultures all around the world still retain that direct gnosis and that direct spiritualism, and they wouldn't really define their practices as religion. It was just whatever their spiritual pursuit was. So the, the persecution of shamans around the world is millennia old, or at least the last five 600 years of Western imperialism or so, and that's trickled down to all different countries and all different repressions and even in some places, you know, suppressions of religions themselves that aren't shamanistic. And so nature abhors a vacuum. Like, you cannot create or destroy energy. It's always there. It's this emanating source. 
you know, the, the primal om which began everything, this vibrational uh, force, that r- the ripples of which and the interference patterns and the dissonance patterns build up space-time and everything's created from. So when the Western culture essentially tried to repress spirituality, indigenous spirituality, it's created a culture of discontent and there's that film, Konosquatsi, uh, like World Out of Balance, and so shamanism as the portal or the gateway as caretakers of the divine never really goes away, but it creates this ache, this real hunger in people's experience for this capacity we have within ourselves for direct communion with God or with source or force or whatever label you want to give it because so many uh, centuries of oppression of our spirituality have even linguistically given us a negative charge around the word God. So, you know, that has a trigger now. But this persecution of of religions and of spirituality and of shamans is still going on in some countries, even in South America, even within intertribal things or with the oil companies who are going into the Amazon and trying to suppress the communities who have solidarity. Because if essentially, if you trip together... If you journey together and if you feel what it really means to be alive, to be given this gift of incarnating in the flesh, on this planet, as part of the planet, not separate from the planet, but as an extension, like fingers on your hand, of the one unbroken thread, the sacredness of life, you're not going to let an oil company come in and and pollute your river or your community. You're going to fight for it. And so spiritual experiences like plant-mediated shamanic connection to to divine sources make us stronger as communities. And so the persecution is still ongoing. And in the Western blossoming, in this resurgence of interest by Westerners who have gone through this culmination of, you know, the the apex of what Terence McKenna used to call dominated culture, essentially was post-World War II, white picket fence America, which won the war, or both the wars, and instigated this global paradigm of what became consumerism, not just even capitalism, but consumerism, which is completely unsustainable, and we're seeing the fruits of that level of consciousness now in this planetary ecological emergency that we're going through, which is directly caused by a lack of connection to the planet itself. So at the same time that happens, this equal and opposite reaction happens, it's like spiritual thermodynamics, right? Spirit starts to flourish back up again. And so these sort of early adopters go into different tribes, like William Burroughs went down to the Amazon in the 50s and Ginsberg followed him a few years later, wrote the Yahe letters and put information about ayahuasca, or telepathine as it was called at the time. But no one else was down there because that was white picket fence America time. But what came through was the LSD revolution. And I know that's made in a lab, but eventually everything is a container for spirit. And LSD opens the mind in the 60s. A generation later, ecstasy opens the heart. And a generation later, by the noughts, we have this really blossoming renaissance of enough people going down to the Amazon to, do, to experience ayahuasca that the plant medicine revival was really underway. And it seemed like there was a cascade in those stepping stones for us to come back to the garden, to get ready. We weren't ready for it en masse in the 50s. But the persecution has continued. And as some of those early adopters who have experienced ayahuasca or the other sacred plants like iboga and things like that have decided to answer the call, the very mythic archetypal call to the shamanic path and to be those medicine people for their communities around the world, they've taken these these seeds and these these plants with them 
and they've started to work in their local communities because it's a network and we're all nodes for the network. And those people are generally still underground in the West, but look around, you know, Elle magazine, Time magazine, uh, you, you name a, a Western uh, media outlet, everyone has covered ayahuasca. They're falling over themselves to cover this blossoming interest in this Amazonian drug, you know, but it's not. There's something deeper going on, and even Western media is feeling it. So that's what we hope with this show. We really dearly love that you guys are here, who I am going to make a presumption are already into these what shouldn't even be considered alternative practices, this deep connection to something you know original again. Uh, but everyone is feeling this awakening, and it's not just a buzzword, it's a verb. You know, It's an active process ongoing in the planet at the moment, and all the pathways are valid. All the pathways lead back to source. You can do tantra, dance, trance, drumming. They're all great. The original shamanic sacraments are secreted by, as Terence said, the planet, which has a plan for us involving the plants, and it's this you know, unbroken thread, and they want us to come back home to the garden. And this time, there's not going to be the drug bust. You know, the history's first drug bust was in the garden with Adam and Eve. But we're, we're coming full circle now because the garden's inviting us back. And when we come back into that, then uh, there's just us. There are no others. So we don't need the hierarchy of cops and robbers and who's to blame. But it's like, you know, we're coming home. Yeah, and that's, that's a great answer, Rack. And to speak to that again, I mean, yeah, shamanism is so about your direct experience. And like in the Western world, I mean... Er- the Western world's terrified of people having direct experiences, so shamanic practices really destroy that kind of paradigm of what you know you highlighted of kind of white picket fence suburban materialist consumerist hell America. So the dynamic of having you know empire spread like you said, and that's repressed shamanism. You know, shamanism. We once were a global shamanic culture, so we will one day return to being a global shamanic culture through much of what what he highlighted, and. Um, yeah, the, anything that is direct experience that is basically inert experience, is that's the beauty of shamanism is that it's about your direct experience and like Rack highlighted, it's not about a hierarchy of something else that's a middleman between you and the divine. So do you have a question? You have a two-part question. One is, I'm just wondering, is there any action plan based on this to maybe drive that forward or to sort of take this and launch it into some kind of moving that forward here? Um, that's one question. Um, and the other one, I guess, is more a comment, which is... Okay. And in terms of here, do you mean just... What, what do you mean by that more specifically? Planet Earth. <laughs> the realm of Earth. Do you want to answer that, dude? I just want to know, do you mean... Do you mean do we physically, with our ego structures, have a plan for the show or for shamanism in general? Or is there a larger you know, galactic plan for the evolution of human consciousness happening through these plant-mediated experiences? Oh, I, I do sort of channel usually. Um, there is a plan. I mean, I, I don't know. It's like, you know, I feel like we're culturally, we can't see the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees. Um, we all have our little pods and our little communities and more and more because of like things like the web where we're coming together and we're recognising the others and we're recognising there are no others, you know. Um, making media about, about shamanism is part of this uh, 
this unbroken wave of connecting and helping inform others because we're not saying this is for everyone. We're not saying these are really powerful experiences and they're, the, they're, they're basically initiations. And the West in general has lost the idea of initiation. In tribal cultures, there's initiations around birth. And I know in, in, in some sort of secret knowledge in Australian Aboriginal communities, you know, women who birth basically do it with the DMT acacias, so the big acacia bushes, and the, the babies are born from source consciousness through the mother into this smoke, like a smudging ceremony, and they're coming into this layer of a plant-mediated, you know, um, into the world. They're, they're, they're held by that. And then other initiations are, are very uh, dynamically anchored in Indigenous cultures around puberty, both for men and for women, and they reflect a need of, uh, you know, the body is the temple and the mind and, and the soul, but there's, there's triggers and there's needs that if they don't get expressed, we remain infants, we, we remain un, uh, unexpressed. We, we, we don't come to our full fruition as human beings. And in the, essentially the battery farm of 21st century consciousness that we have as happy or unhappy little consumers, we haven't been given these, these initiations. And so we remain at a certain level of consciousness until we have had them. And so I, I really believe that with the shamanic sacraments especially, these are very deep initiations. And many people are coming into this in search of healing. And, you know, in indigenous cultures, they sort of believe that there's the physical body, there's an emotional body, there's an energetic body, or the luminous body, the light body. And those different subtle um, facilities within yourself are where you store things. It's like as electromagnetic beings and we're learning technology is what they call an exosomatic evolution. It's something which is evolving faster than the genetics of the body, the somaticness of our body. And it's almost like a, an ego manifestation in our technology. But the real technologies are within. And so we learn that we can record data or we record experiences, whether that's bliss or trauma, basically in our electromagnetic and in our emotional bodies. And so the, the curanderos or the shamans of the Amazon, for instance, a lot of the work they're doing with ayahuasca, they believe that ayahuasca is essentially, you know, it's like it's something which opens you up, but it's, it's, it's a plant spirit which they use on a vibrational sense. So they use the, the, the power of ayahuasca to communicate and to look into your energetic body and see where the blocks are and anything that needs working and shifting and, and removing. And then they sing. And often when they sing their ikaros, their magical songs, they're vibrational codes. And they will call in the spirits of other plants which have uh, an essence which may be good for whatever's ailing you or whatever blockage is in you. And it's not just random. It's like the, 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 everything's, you know, this endless sea of permutations of vibration. And so they're targeting these vibratory codes to work on your energetic body to remove the blockages. And that's just the healing level. So that's a big initiation for many people. But there are deeper and deeper spiritual levels of initiation, which essentially, you know, we talk about this idea of global shamanic cultures around the world. And Octavio mentioned a lot of the Mesoamerican cultures, the Olmecs, the Aztecs, the Maya, uh, all of these different ones which have anthropological evidence of the toad and, and the medicine in them. Uh, there's you know, many different cultures in Peru. There was an empire called Chavin. They predominantly work with the San Pedro cactus, but they've got 
uh, evidence of like DMT snuff pipes, uh, of psilocybin mushrooms, of many, many different uh, substances. And, you know, you look at all the many sacred sites around the world, from the pyramids all around the world and dealing with energetic structures and deep sound chambers that many cultures build in total darkness, um, for you to go through these type of initiations because we're not just physical beings and we're designed to blossom. It's like we're, we're, we're the, 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 the concentrated essence of flowering plants is the flower. And when it flowers, it has all the goodness of the plant, like the whole life force of that organism has gone into this gift that it gives back into the ecology that releases... Um, you know, the, the smells of the flower and the essence and the bees come and it's interconnected in the web of life. It's meant to be the same with us. We're not separated from nature. And when we have these initiations, then on an energetic or soul level, that blossoming then feeds into the energetic ecology. So this sense of initiation, what I, I feel that's happening with the shamanic medicines around the world is there's deeper and deeper levels like the mystery schools have had throughout time, like indigenous cultures have held for their tribal people. And so making media about this, yes, there's a plan. There's a plan that, you know, I feel and I think Niles feels and many of the, the peers I have in uh, the global psychedelic and shamanic community, whether they're working at the coalface helping heal people or be those medicine people for the, the medicines to heal people. And ultimately, we're our own medicine as well. What it really reveals is things aren't done to you, right? Things are done for you and with you. And on a soul level, you're here to learn and you're here to, to blossom like that flower. And everything is a gift. And it can be really hard and it sounds a bit dolphin woo-woo new age to say it, but everything is a gift and you just have to have the eyes to see it and their initiations and so making having a shamanic experience is one thing and then going through deeper and deeper gradations of experience and relationships that you can form with the, the power the plants the essences or the spirits in the plants or, or or the earth sacraments and then the deeper relationships you can form with like the ancestors who are there and i, I it's only been recently in my my shamanic path myself and working with 5-MeO-DMT that I really deeply feel the presence of the ancestors as tangible spirits that are there in the invisible energetic ecology and supporting us and waiting for us and yes, 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 you know, it's like join us is the thing I just love saying because there is no, it's just us, there's just us, there's just, we're not the us we think we are as individuals. So I feel the planet has a plan. And Source has a plan through the planet involving the plants and the sacraments. And we have a plan holding space for making media about this to continue that unbroken energetic thread and help people awaken. So just like I, I don't think you know, the medicine's doing it all, you have to do it yourself, I don't think a show like Shamans of the Global Village can do it all. I think that we're just holding space. We're doing the best we can to document what's going on around the planet and to try to find the right words, the sacred words, to create a container through the media we create to transmit the energy of, of these experiences. And so, yes, there is a plan, and you're all invited. And the second part of your question. Uh, I'm processing what you said. Um, I guess this is maybe just more like 
as as you're making this like i i really think that nothing happens without good reason so like i think this whole western thing i don't think it's a negative it's painful it's a struggle but i think there's something we're learning there that can then come back into the um the earth medicine so that's my take like there's a, i mean i think that our first instinct is yuck 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 but i really feel like there's a lot of juice that we're coming into by going on that route and then when we come and reintegrate with the old it's not going to be like that right we're bringing in all this richness and learning and education that we come that we have here so i guess the reason i asked about what you guys if there's an action plan because I would like to see that, I guess. I would like to see something that sort of explores how, what riches do we get from this, what riches do we get from that, and what's the new thing that we're going to create when we integrate both of those uh, perspectives. Instead of this, like, oh, that's bad, that's bad, and that's good. you know. But, like, both of them are valuable, and how do we, and what's the new thing that's going to come out of that? Yeah, and we fully realize that there is a sensitivity with indigenous tribes about, you know, Westerners coming in and co-opting what sometimes they feel has been their lineage. So in terms of that, I mean, there's speaking to that in the show is obviously, um, as I'm tied up here, we don't have anything more. Um, I mean, making media about something that is, uh, we're trying to, trying to make media that, like Rack says, helps Westerners kind of see that this is something that is a, 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 an integral part of being a human being, what it is to be a human being. And media has a, a capability of getting out to a larger, larger, broader group of people oftentimes than just podcasts and things. So we'd love this show to be not only something that is supported by the community, is just something that we're helping to create to uh, educate Westerners more on this practice. And obviously, Rack has you know over a decade of experience working within the community of um, the entheogenic and psychedelic community. But it's something that just helps other people that are interested in these processes. Like Rack so eloquently said, you can never show the internal experience because it's all about your direct internal experience with these things. We just show, like, the meat body flipping around and, you know, having that external uh, goings-on. But it's all about the internal experience. So if somebody's interested in having a shamanic experience, Shamans of the Global Village could be some step along the way that actually shows what a ceremony looks like in an integral kind of cinematically done way that highlights um, what somebody else has gone through uh, visually, because a lot of the times there's oftentimes many talks about shamanism, but you don't see as much in certain documentaries you do. But this show would be a, a we hope to make uh, something that's a staple for showing ceremonies of each plant medicine so people can have those reference points to then maybe potentially pursue it themselves um, as something if they feel the call to experience one of these things. So do we have any, uh, do we have any other questions here? Yeah. Um, a couple of thoughts with just experiencing the film. Um, the one, the idea that you're using the term shaman the way that you are that's kind of like rooted in in this russian culture using it in this native kind of like setting and one of the things in the film that was weird to me was like how you guys featured the idea that this western medically trained doctor is endorsed by this tribe that had never used that material that this guy brought it to them and taught them how to use it and then kind of that validating his practice and then seeing his practice as kind of like your viewers using it as somewhat of a like a how-to um 
I didn't see the safety in how he was holding space for people. It looked really dangerous to me. Um, and the idea that uh, with this particular material, people that have that experience tend to somewhat worship the person that administers it to him, to them. I could feel the real ego come through in that doctor, um, or so-called doctor. And then, um, so yeah, to kind of piggyback off of those natives that have no idea what that material is about, him being honest with the idea that he really has no idea what that stuff's about, he's reaching into this kind of, like, maybe cultural story that he's heard, experimenting with this stuff with these kind of living guinea pigs, which I fully support on some level, but to kind of, like, endorse it in the media in this way, it's, a, it's skating on thin ice, in my opinion especially knowing what a vulnerable position those people are in that are having that experience. Yes, they're going into it voluntarily, but it's having seen those experiences and spoken with some of the people coming out of those experiences. It's to put that out into the world. People, yeah, are experiencing it, but I just think it's something to contemplate as you launch this into the kind of global reality. I'll let Rack say to uh, speak to that a bit, but yeah, I mean, this is very, you know, especially the first, the medicine that's the focus of the first episode is very serious stuff, you know, five methoxy and then dimethyltryptamine. Rack sometimes describes it as, you know, a star on top of the Christmas tree of entheogens in terms of its power, and Octavia describes it as the uh, center of the X or the top of the pyramid in terms of its power and its ability to send you places. So it's a very it's not this is not recreational stuff it's very serious stuff and you know um octavio is not perfect but he does do a lot of um with in unesco that we highlight in the episode which is his ancient indigenous medicine tours that he goes around the world with giving the medicine he um records a lot of that on youtube so he has a youtube channel where he shows a lot of it and he's done thousands and thousands of patients and the ratio of people that have come out of that experience feeling like absolutely transformed in a better way and having an amazing positive experience. Obviously, the experience is unbelievably uh, serious stuff, and it's very, it can be very purgative. And everybody's experience is different, especially with 5-MeO. So you saw in the ceremony there in the episode, every person's experience is a bit different because it brings out, it's like a mirror for your attainment level, so it brings out what's in you. So one of the gentlemen in the show had a very purgative uh, experience, you know, with stuff basically coming out of every orifice. And it was very much uh, uh, like ayahuasca does, a cleaning out experience. And that was, when you see it on camera with no reference points, it looks very scary. And we had a comment about that with somebody that uh, looked at the show and, you know, didn't have the reference points of what this medicine is um, saying that. So, but that being said, everybody that we shot this episode with that was part of this process came out of it absolutely transformed for the better. And all the footage that Octavio records he has, uh, you know, the ratio of people, I don't know if Iraq knows kind of more exact kind of ballpark percentages, but it's like for every three people that have a negative or bad experience with him, it, he has thousands of people that have profoundly been changed for the better. And I know what you mean. When you have an absolutely life-changing experience with somebody that gives you a medicine like this, you tend to really always, you know, have a special place in your heart for that person. So, um, you know, ego, egos aside, which always, you know, there isn't a single person in this tent that doesn't struggle with ego since that's part of our learning process in this realm. Ego aside, it is something that 
um, uh, there's a lot to be learned by even somebody that's, you know, Octavio's practice as a young, uh, you know, Mexican physician that's now discovered the lineage of this medicine and is always trying to work on bettering himself. Um, but uh, the other thing I was going to add to that is that um, the local tribe, the other part of your question is that the local tribe had basically forgotten the lineage of the toad. So through a series of kind of synchronistic events, I mean, there's probably no coincidences, coincidences in life. Everything kind of happens for a reason. Octavio had rediscovered this medicine and then brought it to the tribal people. So in the episode, um, regardless of how he vocalized that, the, our understanding of kind of that process was that he brought it back to the tribe, and then the tribe had he allowed the tribe to rediscover the lineage that their ancestors had had when they had previously worked with Bufo Alvarius. And then, because of their exposure to it, part of their process was getting the chants that they had gotten from their lineage, from their ancestors, and now Octavio is using those chants in his process. So it's kind of been a back and forth of um, you know, that dynamic. So do you want to speak to that a bit more, Rack? Yeah. Um, many of the entheogenic sacraments have an existing lineage. If you look at the ayahuasca you know, um, communities all through South America, and if you look at that as an example, actually, they're all very varied and very different. So uh, the Shipibo tribe originally, the curandero, the shaman, would drink on behalf of the patient, and it's really only been since Westerners have been coming in search of it that the, now they do ceremonial-style catering to the Westerners who want to take the substance themselves. Other indigenous tribes would take the medicine together as a tribe and have a decentralized sort of approach. The interesting thing about the Bufo Averius toad is that uh, it's sort of buried in history. It doesn't have an existing unbroken lineage. So in the Sonoran Desert, which it is native to, which goes uh, from, you know, top end of Mexico over into America... Uh, there are still people who remember it. Like, I know there's some Native American tribes and some of the Native American churches which even have toads on their preservations and in their environment. They're legally able to work with uh, peyote and sometimes San Pedro cactus. They know of the Bufo Alvarius toad, but they don't necessarily work with it. Like, it's not completely forgotten, but it doesn't have an existing lineage that says, this is our medicine, we are the tribe which have been the caretakers for it, and this is how you do it, right? But the interesting thing is that, and this happens, you know, many different curanderos I've talked to with many different medicines, they say essentially, like, they say, what's the origin of ayahuasca? And they say, well, one day, you know, many, many generations ago, Someone, you know, a, a tribesperson was out in the jungle and this plant spoke to him. It was the spirit of ayahuasca and it basically said, put me with that plant over there and boil me up and drink me. Or that, that's, you know, the, the urban, the, the jungle legend. Um, but essentially, it's like the, the spirits in the plants, and that's a, ju a jump in cosmologies from the West to indigenous understanding, that there are discarnate intelligence, intelligences which exist in these materials... Um, they speak to the people that have the relationship with them by taking it into their systems and they will instruct how to use them or what they're good for or show you, you know, what, what the relationship is. And there are 13 tribes in the Sonoran Desert. The Seri are just one of them. And here's the thing. It's, it's like a microcosmic 
indicator within the macrocosmic uh, configuration is that, you know, the war on drugs is really affecting that region because of the Mexican border. The Mexican cartels have totally devastated most of those, you know, remote communities, as well as, um, you know, the imperial legacy, even in Mexico, of taking the remaining indigenous peoples, taking them off their original land, putting them on reserves. There's so many layers of disconnection and of stuff that's gone on with these tribes that no wonder they don't remember their, you know, their roots of, of these medicines. There are some, some of the other tribes I know that also work with the, the Bufoa various toad, but none of them really have a public face of this knowledge. It could be uh, esoteric knowledge and it could be you know, public knowledge, but none of them are really claiming that they have had this unbroken thread of working with the toad. But essentially, Octavio went down, was working with the Seri for about three, four years as just a GP, as a physician for the community. And the whole community had basically crack addictions, like including the elders, men, women and children, because the cartels were swamping that area. So there's this conflux of uh, pressures on that, that particular tribe. And as we were talking about no coincidences, Octavio was turned on by another Western doctor that he trained with, um, and he had access to this medicine, and he felt that in his experience, this medicine of the Buffalovarius toad and what it did to the body and to the soul and the reconnection could really help with addictions. And there's a lot of research happening now with 5-MeO and, and the Buffalovarius toad medicine looking at uh, immunomodulation and removing of blockages. It's basically like God's factory reset. It can be this endocrine flush from the tryptamines in the brain and how it works in the body, and it can cure addiction. But it, it can, it's not just that. It's not, you can't just medicalize what this substance is because it has a deeply spiritual significant component to it. Um, so the relationship with, within the, the tribe is, you know, it's, it's intimate and it's difficult to convey the nuances of politics because, yes... He was, their, he was their doctor for three, four years. He was working with them with normal medicines and then with the toad. And what he first did was that he went to ask permission of the elders of the tribe, of the community, to give them the medicine. And they agreed and they experienced that direct connection to source and they saw the, the value of it. And through that, the elders have given permission and protocols to initiate other providers in the community um, to decentralise. And so it's not just about the ego of Octavio. And let's be frank here, Octavio is a very fiery, yang, egotistical figure. He has, he has a lot of ego. And you know what? He, he is driven to share this medicine and to provide it. I almost feel like my, my shorthand is that Octavio is like Moses from the Old Testament. You know, he has, he has this archetypal quality to him that is very ego. And he has an incredibly good heart. And I, I vetted him very well before I would do this show with him. And he's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He learns from the mistakes. And he's doing the best he can. And he has, he's done like seven, 8,000 people in seven, eight years. So it's a lot of people. And there's a fire and a drive behind him almost to like carry the flame of this knowledge which was lost. And even though there were pockets of it maybe under the surface in tribal scenarios or maybe in the West, you know, it's like it wasn't really, it wasn't really known. And I, I feel that um, he's done an amazing job with the drive he's had. And in that relationship he's had with the, with the Seri tribe, 
uh, he's learnt the songs. He stayed with them. He lived with them. It's very primitive conditions. They barely have running water. They've only recently got electricity. But he's lived and breathed and, and been with them. And within the tribe, like with many, many tribes, and I know this from Australian Aboriginals and all the ramifications of everything that's happened to them, you know, the disconnect and the, the, the murder of their, their culture over many generations, essentially is that they're broken up and uh, vested power interests then divide and conquer and then, you know, certain power blocks will be for this project or this thing that outside forces advocate, you know. And there's politics, there's tribal politics in every level. Uh, But the medicine has disseminated through that tribe, separate from Octavio, but in his relationship with them, he has been given permission to learn the songs, the sacred, sacred songs, which we don't know are connected to the tribe, but... You know, like many indigenous cultures, the songs are sacred and they do connect to spirit and they bring through a deep ancestral connection. So as much as he's, in some sense, initiated the tribe, the tribe have initiated Octavio and they've given him permission to use the songs and to use that in his ceremony with the toad medicine, which even if the tribe doesn't claim ongoing lineage with, it's part of the land and it's part of the legacy of the land. And so there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of different people trying to help facilitate both from within the Seri and the 13 tribes of the Sonoran Desert and from outside in the West trying to create bridges of respect and consensus to support the preservation of the toad because one of the things which happens with the supply and demand in consumer culture is, yeah, the whole West is coming onto the idea of, of this global shamanic resurgence but there's not enough medicine for everyone, right? And not that the medicine is for everyone yet, but like uh, Lindsay Lohan did ayahuasca about two, three years ago. She had a miscarriage and she heard about the power of ayahuasca and healing and what it could do. She had a very positive cathartic experience and then she tweeted it to like six million of her followers. And if like 10% of those decide to go down to the Amazon there goes the supply of ayahuasca for another seven years, you know. So there are really delicate political and management issues around sacred shamanic medicines, and we deeply understand this, and we're not trying to glorify shamanic medicines, we're trying to shine some light on the role of the shaman as a caretaker for the medicines with a connection to indigenous cultures, with a connection to the planet and that unbroken thread. And yes, there's politics, and yes, there's egos, and yes, this is a movement, and yes, it's difficult, but it's birthing itself into the world. And the interesting thing with 5-MeO, which I really believe, it was explained to me many years ago, is like the the tree of life as a, a schematic for energy, you know, and understanding how energy works. Or you could say like a Christmas tree with the different baubles on different branches. All the entheogens have a place in nature and in the circuit diagram of how the divine imprints on the planet. And so on that circuit diagram, you might have, you know, psilocybin, San Pedro, acacias, whatever. But 5-MeO-DMT in all its, all its containers is essentially the star at the top of the tree of life. It's the light, it's, and the thing is with 5-MeO, it's in Phalaris grass, it's in some varolas in different plants and trees, uh, it's in the toad medicine, apparently it's in some fish, uh, but most importantly, it occurs endogenously in the human brain. 
And this is what I, I mean. All of these medicines, I believe, are keys and triggers and reminders for what we have within us ourselves. So there's not enough shamanic entheogenic sacraments around the world ongoingly to be sustainable for everyone. But this is the wake-up call. This is the thing that says, look within. You know, There's this whole world in there. The, um, the Sequoia tribe in Ecuador work with 5-MeO in their, their version of ayahuasca. They call it Yahe. And in their brew, they take two weeks to sing to the medicine, to prepare the medicine, to do it on an open flame, to sing to it, to energize with it, to feel it, to resonate and come into cohesion with it. They drink in hammocks off the ground. And they say that when they drink it, they connect to the star people, to the people who live in the light. And it's interesting because that's what the 5-MeO experience is, of the light and of the deep, 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 deep source but there's, as many other cultures have given us maps, there's like Bardo states or there's an energetic ecology from the baseline material world into maybe sort of like the NNDMT, you know, entities and fractaling geodesic. There's, there's spaces. There's an inner cartography uh, of the astral and of uh, life forms that exist on the energetic realm. But the deeper and deeper you go, the vibration just becomes pure light. And so when the sequoias say they work with the, star, the starry beings who live in the light, I'm really drawn to believe, in, in my experiences with 5-MeO, you have the deep, deep source, and there's an, like an event horizon around it where the ancestors live and potentially the descendants, and almost like this holographic matrix of all space-time in that bandwidth. And I feel that when the sequoias say there's these, these people that live in the light who gave them the original recipe and understanding of how to work with their yahe, I feel that uh, this potential is also within us and that these substances are reminding us that we have the on switch, like God's left the on switch back there for us to access. And in this season of consciousness, we're coming full circle and all the entheogens are preparing us and cleansing us and deepening us in our initiations to reveal this light and to go within. So the, the ultimate initiation and the ultimate anchoring of what the Australian Aboriginals call dreamtime consciousness is to be able to function in some type of tryptamine, holographic, all space-time as one and still be here on this planet. And it seems like from the Sequoia, and I'm making a metaphor and I'm jumping and, and sort of having artistic license here, but what if over large tracts of time between the ice ages and the pressures of, uh, of uh, living down here on planet Earth... What if there's like this crest of the wave and we're going through the sixth great species extinction as we speak and the biomass and the physicality of the forms are falling away? Like every day, species are dying, but energy is not created or destroyed. It goes back into the, into the energetic matrix of Gaia herself and she's building up to a charge for something new at the same time as the plant sacraments are switching us all on, getting ready for this thing. And it seems to me perhaps... This is part of the natural process and of awakening and of the grand age, world ages and cycles. And that at the crest of the wave, a species gets an opportunity to reclaim the knowledge of their luminous body and to step into the light. And so down here in this initiatory phase, as we're going into this, sometimes it takes ego. It takes ego to let go of ego because 5-MeO is completely ego dissolving. You, for 10 years, I've thought I've surrendered in ayahuasca. I've let go. I've surrendered. I've surrendered. I've surrendered. Oh, my God. 
Rumi, the poet, the Sufi poet, says the drop rejoins the ocean. And it does, and it does, and it does, and it does, and it does. So anyway, I, I feel that perhaps there's this crest of the wave, there's this global initiation happening and for the last 10,000 years or more, we've been ego-driven creatures. We've needed the ego. We basically have species PTSD because we fell from unity consciousness. It's the fall. It's in all the different myths around the world, not just the flood and the deluge, but the fall. And to cope with that, we've created... Well, the ego has risen to the fore as one of our compartments of intellect, imagination, intuition, and all the different capabilities. And we've been holding so tight to this pain of separation and now we're being invited to come back to the light and to full circle. So yes, there's ego and yes, I'm not going to make apologies but I think a lot of people involved in the shamanic movement are doing the best they can and we're all peers for each other and reflections for each other and we're all helping each other find our way home as I think Ellen Watts said. Yeah, and as, as you know, you or I aren't perfect or Octavius aren't isn't perfect you know we all are learning this process and this is a learning experience for all of us but one thing i do give credit to octavio in saying um in the episode is that this is a self-healing process so unlike a lot of the western medicines that he'd use or what we call medicines um the toad for example and what rack highlighted so well is a is a process that you can only heal you like bruce lee said there is no help but self-help so there's two reasons why somebody would want to partake in something like this, and the first one is for healing, and the other is for the expansion of consciousness. So that's something that for a young gentleman that's on his path of learning discovery and growth like we all are, I think he highlights him so well in the episode and is infinitely wise. So we have about five have minutes one left. Question. One more question? Yeah. Yeah, Annie? So my question is, um, where are the women who are doing healing in this tribe, and who are the women shamans that you are profiling in your series? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant question. Hands it to me. The women are out there. The women are out there, and, and God bless, because you know this would be out of balance if there wasn't uh, a representation of women doing the shamanic work. There's super quick. One of the women that we're very interested in potentially talking to is in the Women's Visionary Congress. Yeah, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, I, I, I think of like the Virgin Mary of uh, the psychedelic culture is Maria Sabina, you know, who was the gatekeeper for the patriarchy coming in, in a sense. And there's been a lot of, you know, light and dark there with Gordon Wasun coming in and using his influence. Uh, but the, the female curanderos of Mexico, we're working... Potentially, you know, we're just launching the episode, but we have, we're, we're aiming for an equal balance of men and women to document and to see the differences, you know, in practitioners and of that yin energy, which can be really fuerte as well, really strong in its own way, and also really, you know, those qualities of, of care and of compassion and of the feminine energy is so important to it. So we're looking at um, a, a mushroom shamaness, definitely, and uh, an ayahuascaro, a woman who works with ayahuasca, and potentially with salvia divinorum. And we're open to finding the right people to document because we, we recognize that is a, there's a great duty of care for us as filmmakers to show people that are doing this the right way, but definitely looking at the, the role of uh, female practitioners in the shamanic resurgence. 
So thanks for coming, everybody. You know, thanks for making it out today. And um, we just wanted to kind of say thank you to Palenque Norte for allowing us to do a brief showing of the episode here today. This is only the second time it's ever been shown. So, um, yeah. Yeah, first time in daytime as well. So it's always going to be available at shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. That's where you can always find it and hopefully future episodes in the series. So uh, a series like this obviously is very much something that's been made independently. There's no way that this type of content at this point in time, oftentimes highlighted by your question, would be made um, by kind of old school channels of hierarchy from the top down. So this is a very much a bottom-up process and how we're putting this together. So... Um, you know, we just appreciate any community support along the way, even if that's just sharing the message and sharing what we're doing. So thanks so much again. They say it takes a tribe to raise a child, and it definitely takes a tribe to support a documentary series. It, it, it almost feels like the 12 tasks of Hercules because we, you know, there's, we, we see at least a dozen major uh, entheogens around the planet which are being used and uh, coming to prominence again and looking at the, the caretakers of those substances. So this is a, uh, a real labor of love, both for Niles and I and the rest of the team. And uh, it is launching on October the 1st at shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. And uh, we'll be all over social media and doing our sort of podcasts and outreach. Uh, and we really, really need your support to do that, to help share and uh, let other people know who are interested in, uh, in these substances and in this, this level of initiation and engagement. So um, thank you so much from all of us uh, and check us out at shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. Aloha. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I think that I can speak for most of us when I say how much I appreciate the work that Rack and Niles have done and are doing to preserve more of the knowledge about how our planet's medicinal plants continue to be used by indigenous people, uh, people that most of us are never going to be able to visit with in person. And along with the work of a long line of ethnobiologists that stretches back uh, even beyond the legendary Richard Evan Schultes and uh, on through current researchers like Jonathan Ott. Well, the documentary films of Rack and Niles I find to be equally important because, well, they reach out to us less scholarly people who, nonetheless, can play a role in preserving this important human knowledge in ways of our own. And so if you go to www shamans of the global village all one word all lowercase shamans of the global you can learn more about this very important work now before i go i want to mention some new music that has come to my attention at least it's new music to me almost every week i receive inquiries from fellow saloners asking if i would play some of their music here in the salon but as you know i don't do that very often and I won't be doing it today, by the way. And there's several reasons for this, the main one being the fact that after a lot of discussion with a wide range of our fellow saloners, I decided to produce these podcasts with very low audio quality settings so that the file sizes of the podcast can be kept as small as possible. And that, of course, means that playing your music here really doesn't do it justice. But the band that I'm going to mention now, well, they didn't even contact me directly. Instead, I found a posting on the Salon's forums about an upcoming gig of theirs in London. 
Uh, this posting was made by Orphic Resonance, and I'll put a link in it to today's program notes, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, while I seldom play music that's sent to me, well, I always listen to it. And so, when I saw the posting on the forums, I clicked the link and listened to this art rock band that's called Phase Theory. That's P-H-A-Z-E Theory. I mean, uh, how could I resist after Orphic said that their music was inspired by listening to Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Miles Davis Electric, Jimi Hendrix, and Funkadelic? <laughs> and since I've bought music from all of those influences, I had to wonder what kind of sound Phase Theory had created. And I wasn't disappointed. Over the course of my life, there have been a number of different musical influences that, uh, well, that stand out from the rest. And keep in mind here that I was buying Elvis Presley 45s in high school at a time when his new songs were just beginning to hit the top 40. And uh, I've listened to a lot of music since then. In 1967, just at the start of the Summer of Love, and one week before our ship deployed for the war in Vietnam, we had a party. And it was that night that we all heard the new Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Marching Band, for the first time. Then somewhere around 1983, my oldest son gave me a copy of Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. Well, those two albums for me kind of bracket my experience as a Vietnam vet. Then, uh, in the early 1990s, my youngest son was attending a university in Boston, and he became a fan of a local band that was hot on the college circuit at the time. When he handed me a copy of their latest album, he had this uh, silly little smile on his face, and he said, I think you're going to like this. Well, the album was titled Cure for Pain, and was by a band that consisted of drums, a bass guitar, and a saxophone. The band name was Morphine, <laughs> and if you've ever heard them, well, their unusual sound is going to stay with you forever. So, a couple of days ago, I clicked on a link to listen to Phase Theory. And I learned that the band consists of drums, a lead guitar, a fantastic female singer, and an electric tuba. Now, I really don't need to say much more, because you should be able to guess the rest. Let me say it this way. Although I never thought that I would find something that I liked better than morphine, phase theory takes that vibe to an entirely new level. <laughs> That sounds cool when I say it like that. <laughs> Makes phase theory sound like a drug, and it's a, it's a drug for the ear, I guess. At least to me. Anyhow, on July 20th, they're going to be holding their album launch party at Servant Jazz Quarters in London. And if I lived in London, well, that's where I'd be on the 20th of next month. I'll put some links to a couple of their YouTube videos in today's program notes, but uh, be sure to use headphones if you can. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention the fact that the lyrics to some of these songs are actually poems of Yeats and Huxley. In fact, uh, I'm going to go back for another listen right now. So, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>